And you can go ahead and be seated here. We're not going to move too far into the message time before we pray, but I want to say this really quickly. Um, the passage really breaks down into three areas, and we saw it last week, and we'll finish it next week. So I mentioned that it's going to be kind of a slow, bumpy start to the Gospel of Mark, uh, but it will be well worth it. Rest assured, we will not push the limits of this passage as we've looked at it last week and this week and the week after. Um, there really is so much to see and observe in the text that's going to set us up for uh, flying through the rest of the book together. But uh, we actually don't want this series to go 13 years, okay? So, so rest assured. But let's go ahead and join together in prayer and, uh, and ask God to bless this time as we open up his word. God, we are grateful that we can build our lives upon your love, and we're going to see your love being evidenced in a very miraculous way here in the passage as we see your unassumingness about you, uh, your humility to undergo what we needed to undergo, um, and your um, connection with us in your baptism and your temptation. And so, God, I pray that we would come here with sobered hearts, ready to hear from you. God, I pray for every single one of your children here as I look out on the room and I pray that you would bless them as they open up their copies of the scriptures and search these things out for themselves. And for those that are watching online too, that they would be humbled by this passage, that we'd be able to see a beautiful Savior here. And so God, would you add your blessing to those who read, hear, and obey this word. And it's in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. All right, so we want to get ready. Um, we're, like I said, we're going to be in this passage for three weeks now. Um, next week will be three weeks, but... Uh, the passage really starts off by saying to us, get ready. And we see that evidence in verses 2 and 3. Something new, something very big is about to happen that we all need to get ready for, is what Mark is going to indicate to us. And he says that when he writes chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. He says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So what we have here is some sort of blended prophetic cocktail, okay? Shirley Temple style, of course. All right, one part Torah, Moses, one part major prophet, Isaiah, one part minor prophet, all right, Malachi. And so I pointed this out in the first few weeks of the series when we read the Gospel of Mark, when we read this first chapter, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes Malachi 3.1. You're like, wait a minute, what's the deal there? You just said Malachi, or you just said Isaiah, and then you quoted Malachi. What's the deal, Mark? Are you like messed up in your brain? Do we have any credibility to talk to us about this? You're quoting the wrong prophet, right? So this is what's happening from a literary standpoint. It's actually wonderful. You're going to see that Mark is a masterful writer. What's happening here is that Mark is so well-versed in the Old Testament that he's able to string together a few Old Testament quotes that have similar words centered around the same theme. This is actually masterful writing that he gives evidence to his extensive Old Testament knowledge here. We kind of do the same thing sometimes when we're praying and we hear a verse and we start praying after a verse and we hear a word in that verse that triggers a memory of another verse that triggers a, a memory of another verse, and then we kind of seamlessly allow the Word of God to direct our prayers. So, for example, you might be led to pray like this. 
God, I thank you so much for loving the world that you gave your one and only son. God, we know that we have the capacity to love because you first loved us. God, thank you for your love. It never fails. Okay, so you see what I did there. The topics that are surfaced in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, naturally led me to other writings of John. John 1, or 1 John 4.19, we love because God loved us first, right? And then I landed in the writings of the Apostle Paul, love never fails. So Mark quotes Malachi 3.1, but he blends it together with what Isaiah said, who himself is making an allusion to what Moses recorded when the law was initially given in the book of Exodus. So let's look at these verses, okay? Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come to his temple. So here, get this. This is very important. A messenger will come, and then the Lord will come. And, and Mark knows this from Malachi, but he knows it from Isaiah as well. Because Isaiah 40 verse 3, it says this, A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for who? Our God. So once again, it's someone will come first to prepare the way. In the wilderness, I want to add, is what Isaiah says. And then God will come. And what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 is based off of what Moses said when Israel was in the wilderness before they entered into the land of promise. It was a quotation from Exodus chapter 23 verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So what's going on here? What Mark is saying with this very opening verse, this, this blended prophetic cocktail of verses here, is he's going to say that basically the whole of the Old Testament is going to testify to the story that I'm about to tell you about Jesus. So basically, in summary, I God will send my messenger, John the Baptist, who is a new type of Elijah, ahead of Jesus. John the Baptizer will get people ready to have an encounter with me, God. So get ready. Mark is writing this down and he says to us, get ready. And the next part of the passage says, get set. So we're, we're getting ready, like, okay, get ready, get set. In this section, what we're going to see is how John got the people in position to actually have a favorable encounter with God. It's a very important question. How do I have a favorable encounter with God? Well, I better get ready, and I better get set. How do I get set? John's going to tell us. Verses 4 through 5. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here, this is, people, I love God's word. I hope you see that. I love it. This is, this is amazing. John is in the wilderness. The place 
where corporate Israel was many, many centuries ago. Getting ready to go to a place that God had promised to take them, but they had to pass through waters of the Jordan River to get there. So John positions himself in a location that really isn't a pleasant place to go, but a ton of people were willing to embrace the unpleasantness in order to go to him and be pressed under water by him. Those that went were willing to leave the comforts of society in their homes to seek God. They knew the prophecies. For them, the pathway of preparation to meet God wasn't pleasant, but their going proved that it was worth it. And so the same goes for us. It is required of us to take the humble position of being dependent upon God to miraculously provide for our eternal survival. It will take leaving the comforts and in comfort's place take up our crosses and confess to God that, look, God, we've messed up and I desperately need your help. That's what these people were doing. It's the same prescription for us today. They're coming to John in droves in the desert to the historical place where God had provided day after day exactly what a new generation needed in order to be sustained until God would give them what was promised after they passed through the waters. The ministry taking place in the wilderness is a big deal. Why? Because for about 400 years there had been no prophetic word. God was seemingly silent. Maybe God had abandoned his people and his promises. But then, listen, they catch wind of a man who's a radical preacher of repentance, who has a very direct message that he is dictating to the masses in the wilderness, and they had better listen because why? God was about to show up. They're like, okay, we better go. We'll go to the wilderness. It might be unpleasant, but we know what this is about. God's going to come. Side note. When you look around the world today, you also might be tempted to think that God is being very negligent in his sovereignty over the nations. You might be thinking that he's slow in keeping his promises for a return. For 400 years, I want to remind you, God was seemingly silent, but all the while he was busy preparing the world for a man to show up in the wilderness with a voice that would go out into the desert and then proclaim, repent! And suddenly, it happened. And people had the chance to respond. There will be a day Maybe today, when you won't hear the voice of a lone man out in the desert crying out, repent, rather you're going to hear loud voices from heaven shouting, and this is what they'll be saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. People, listen. Don't get caught off guard. You won't have a chance to respond then. Our God may be coming soon. He might come before I finish this sentence. Tense, right? That's intense. So end of the intense, sobering side note. That's what God did for 400 years. Like, man, God must have forgotten. He's not going to show up. But then they catch wind of a man who said that he might or that he will. And they respond. Today is the day you respond. Don't wait for that day. It will be too late. Do you hear me? That's the importance of this. They're responding in droves to this. Let's move on in the passage. Because Mark moves on and he says this. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what's up with the funky dress code and the strange diet? You know? Now, whenever you see something out of the ordinary in Scripture, you need to stop and pause and try to investigate why it's there. Why would Mark include such a strange detail just keep up with the narrative like that's a weird almost throwaway editorial comment why mark would you say what you said there what's the significance of mark telling us what john was wearing and what john was eating okay well here's the significance the garment of camel's hair and a leather belt is an allusion to the prophet elijah everyone would have known this in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we read this. They answered him, and he wore a garment of hair, speaking of Elijah, and a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. They're like, there goes Elijah and his camel hair and his leather belt, right? So the description of John's attire connects him to the prophet Elijah, John we learn from other passages in the Old Testament and from Jesus himself, was the Elijah to come first. We read that in Malachi and we read that in Matthew. So, okay, here's the timetable. It's happening. John is here. He looks just like Elijah. And look what he's eating. What about the locusts and the honey? That's weird. Why is it there? Well, we've got to ask ourselves, what does it symbolize in the Old Testament? Well, honey, if you didn't know, this is sweet. It's what the promised land was flowing with according to Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Honey is associated with God's promise of blessing. It's something to delight in. It's a mark of fruitfulness. Locusts, on the other hand, are quite a bit different. 
We see numerous times throughout the Old Testament that locusts were used by God to bring about a judgment from God. I could go to multiple passages, I don't need to. But what you'd find is that if locusts came to your crops, your crops would be consumed and the people who needed the crops would suffer. So honey is associated with blessing and locusts were associated with judgment and curses. And John shows up, get this, John shows up and starts putting into his mouth that which symbolically stood for blessings and cursings. His diet embodied both aspects of his prophetic ministry. Listen, you either heed his message or you're going to get smoked. The food going into John's mouth was symbolic of what was coming out of it. If you want to have a positive encounter with God who is coming, you better repent of your ways, confess your sins, otherwise you will be consumed and you will receive just judgment. Blessings or curses are your only two options when God shows up. So going out to John in the wilderness is a massive swallowing of your pride moment for these people. They say, look, it's either blessings or curses. We're going to go. We want to receive blessing." And if you're going to go meet with God, you better prepare yourself to meet him. God is coming. Get ready for his arrival. And this is what John says. You better repent and you better confess. So that surfaces a question in the passage. What is the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin? It seems like a strange concept for us that know the rest of the New Testament. Well, the ministry of John was far from a religious ritual. It's pretty unique. That's, I think, why people were drawn to him. Like, we got to go see what's happening out there. We caught wind of this man. But it wasn't just some religious ritual. They swallowed their pride and came. Water in the Old Testament had a few associations. It could symbolize death and chaos, or it can symbolize cleansing. Think about this. God used water to destroy the earth. And he used water to ceremonially cleanse his people from their sin. So once again, it's either blessings or curses, curses or blessings. Isaiah knew this. And so that's why Isaiah writes in Isaiah 1, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, and then cease to do evil. Cleanse yourselves and then walk in repentance, cease to do that. So there's nothing magical about the water in Isaiah's day, nor was there anything magical that was flowing within Jordan's banks in John the Baptist's day. What made the water effectual for cleansing was a willingness to submit to and obey what God had said would be necessary for a cleansing. It wasn't just like jump through this religious hoop and you get cleansed. It was obeying what God had commanded. So think of Naaman. Sometimes we say his name is Naaman. It's Naaman. It's three syllables. Think about his healing in the Old Testament. He reluctantly but eventually took the servant girl's advice to go wash in the dirty Jordan River. Right? He, think about it. He had to swallow his pride and he went and he washed in the dirty waters of the Jordan River. And after dipping himself in seven times over, his leprous skin became pure and clean. It became pure and clean not because of the dirty water in the Jordan, 
but because he admitted, look, I got a problem, and I need to submit to what the Lord's instructing me to do, even if it's through a servant girl, right? So he swallows his pride, and he humbles himself, and he does what God calls him to do. So baptism of repentance, i.e., water used to cleanse people for the forgiveness of their sins, was preparatory and evidenced in also David's famous psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. Look at this. We see this theme of water cleansing people as well. David says, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. Oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I need to be washed and cleansed. David admits his very private sin with Bathsheba that quickly became very public, and he pleads for God to extend mercy to him and to cleanse him. Wash away my guilt and shame. This is something that David couldn't drum up on his own. He tried to cover it up left and right. None of it worked. It came out. Your sin will come out. Hear that. Your sin will come out. And David couldn't drum up this washing and cleansing on his own. David was in a God-sized problem that only God could deliver him from. So he says, God, would you please wash me? Wash me. And David was in a God-sized problem that only God could deliver him from. And so were the people that were going to John in the desert, and so are ours. People were way in over our heads, steeped in sin. And the solution is not just to jump into some baptismal waters, right? The solution is to obey the call to repent. So let's talk about what repentance is. You're going to see it throughout the Gospel of Mark. Repentance is not just a turning away from sin, but it's actually a turning towards God and then pursuing him. So we were excited this last week when we heard um, that there might be snow in the mountains, right? Anybody excited about snow in the mountains? Anybody care about that? It's fun, right? I like it. So we're all excited. It's getting cold and like, okay, maybe it's going to snow and and I think even in the office, Angela, you're like, look, there's snow on Mount Sumas or Sumas Mountain, whatever you call it. It's exciting, right? So imagine, you know, if, if I said to Suze, babe, it snowed this week. Let's head to the mountains today and go check it out, you know, which we did on Friday. We went up to the mountains a little ways to try to go check it out, but we didn't get that far, all right? But then I got in the car and I started headed towards Birch Bay, okay? What would be the problem with that? Anybody? Directionally challenged? I'm going in the wrong way, Right? I'm heading in the wrong direction. If I'm going to get to the mountains to see the snow, I had better stop the way I was going, turn around, and head east toward the foothills if I'm going to make it to the mountains. It's not enough just to stop in your tracks and turn. i got to stop and my tracks turn and then pursue. Repentance in the Bible is a thorough, deep-seated, genuine change at the core of who you are. It's like you wake up from your sleepwalking state and you realize that, look, if I just take one more step in the direction that I am going, I'm going to plunge headlong into an abyss where I will weep and gnash my teeth for eternity. So you stop 
and you turn around and then you start running the race of repentance in the exact opposite direction from which you formerly came. And that which formerly came natural to you, you say, I'm going to turn to God and I'm going to pursue him instead. So, question, have you repented? Have you? Does what I just described describe you? The passage says, get ready. John has come. Get set. John showed you the way. And then it's going to say, go. But here's the crazy thing. The goer is not the reader. It's Jesus. Jesus hears this. It's like, get ready, get set. And then he shoves us out of the starting blocks and takes our place and he goes. I love this. Look at what it says. What we will see here in this text is that because Jesus engaged in active obedience on our behalf, we can find the forgiveness in him that we could never find anywhere else outside of him on our own. Get ready, get set, and here comes Jesus. He's going to go. It's beautiful writing. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee of Galilee and was baptized in the John in the Jordan, by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. People, (laughs) this is amazing. We're going to see something so beautiful about our Savior here. Consider this. The way that Mark tells the story of Jesus' arrival is so, so very anticlimactic. You'd think that there'd be some like massive, dramatic entrance onto the scene. But Mark just says, you know, kind of in those days, Jesus came from Nowheresville, right? I mean, Nazareth, right? He's just presented as one among the many in the crowds. There's droves coming out, and Jesus came out too. He's from Nazareth. He doesn't show up with a halo on his head. Verse 9 indicates that Jesus is nearly indistinguishable among the masses. He's just another guy that's going out into the wilderness to see John. Just like everyone else. He obeys what John prescribes. Oh. And we see Jesus identifying with sinners. Jesus didn't need to repent of his own personal sin, but he did want to publicly identify with those who did. And so he goes under the waters and he identifies with what everyone else in the crowd actually needed. Jesus is so unassumingly humble here. And then he's empowered by the Spirit to accomplish what he was sent here to do. But listen, shh. All this. It's kind of taking place under the radar. 
Look at what happens in verses 10 and 11. And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he, Jesus, saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, Jesus, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are, that's second person, that's not this is, third person, this is you are. This is a personal conversation God is having with his beloved son. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So what we see here is like the secret, covert, secretive operation taking place that's happening in the wilderness by some man that's coming from Nazareth. And no one else knows this. That's the way Mark presents it. When Jesus comes up out of the water, it says that Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Mark doesn't say that everybody else saw it. It was like, oh, you know, it wasn't that. No one else sees it, but Jesus did. And listen, we, Mark's readers, are in on the secret. We're like, oh, wow. We're in on the secret. We see what's happening. The characters in the wilderness with him don't see this. They don't know, but we know we're in on it. And you might think that's pretty cool to have the inside scoop. But what that really means, what Mark is doing here, is that if we know what we know about Jesus more so than the characters and the stories themselves, then we better act on what we know to be true. Mark says, look, I'm reaching out to you across the centuries. I wrote this down, and let me grab your heart. You know, you know who Jesus is. You heard the secret conversation. You saw the dove, like, The heavens being torn open is an Old Testament allusion to God being let loose and on the move. To turn a popular phrase, all heaven was breaking loose. But it was in a secretive way. And then a dove hovers over Jesus, which signifies that a whole new creation has begun. Think about Genesis when the Spirit hovered over a formless, chaotic void. But here it's hovering over a human, indicating that God was intending to transform all of humanity through this one man. There's a whole new creation coming that's going to bring about a lot of order from the chaos in this man. And we, the readers, are in on the secret. We're all privy to this information. And look at verse 11. We're told what, G- what only Jesus heard, right? A voice said from heaven, you are not this is my beloved son. Nobody but Jesus Mark, the omniscient storyteller, and us, the readers, really know who Jesus is and how he was validated by the voice coming from heaven. This is so amazing. We'll see it later in the transfiguration, how it's a little bit different. But then, after being empowered by the Spirit and validated by the voice of the Father, the Son is, listen to this, driven out into the wilderness. What? So one final side note, the baptism narrative of Jesus is one of those texts that you can point to to explain the triune nature of God. What was kind of concealed in the Old Testament plural pronouns for God is made explicit in the New Testament, and this is one of those passages that you can point to. You got God the Son, God the Father's voice, and you got the Spirit descending. But look how Mark continues on. 
It says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild angels and the angels, or wild animals. <laughs> he was with the wild, you guys are listening, I don't know, by the, I'm only, I only got like a page left, I don't know if you're still with me, I got to throw something in there, right? And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So here's the thing. We can't miss this. Mark does not, he said, please don't miss this, is what he's saying. Get this. Answer me. Where did Jesus go to get baptized by John? He went to the Jordan, which was in the wilderness, right? Yeah, wilderness, good. Then after his baptism, where he's driven by the Spirit into, the wilderness. And then just in case we don't get it, Where is Jesus? Mark says to us again in verse 13. He was in the wilderness. So where's Jesus? In the wilderness. 40 days. It's like Mark is winking at us. He's saying to us, do you catch my drift, right? Don't make me spell it out for you any clearer than I already have. How did he spell it out for us? Listen, Jesus identifies with sinful people in his baptism in the wilderness. And then he's thrust further out into a lonelier, more remote place than corporate Israel had ever been. And he's going to be tempted in an ongoing way just like they were long ago. He was being tempted. Present tense participle, meaning It's an ongoing temptation for 40 days. Who was in the wilderness for 40 years? Israel, right? Tempted to grumble and they gave in. So what will Jesus do when he's tempted? Being tempted in an active, ongoing way for 40 days. People, look at me. I hate it. And I think you and I, we, we share this in common. I hate it when temptation lingers. I hate it when I experience moments of temptation. I hate it when they linger. And sometimes it lasts for days, right? Sometimes, sadly, the only way moments of temptation end is by giving in to them. So come unglued about this. Click on that, overeat this, drink too much of that, tell a falsehood here, spread a slanderous rumor there, you fill in your blanks. When the temptation is over, it's not because I was victorious, it's because of guilt, shame, and regret took its place. Do you hear me? This was not what Jesus did. He endured the totality of temptation and didn't give in And he did this on behalf of us. He demonstrated to us that the way of escape in any moment of temptation, you know what it is? Obedience. Some of you claim that promise from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, don't you? God is faithful. He'll provide a way of escape. What is it? Do you know what it is? Obedience. That's always your option. Don't forget about God when you're tempted. He is faithful, and he will always provide a way of escape. You know what it's called? It's called obedience. So Jesus endures the totality of temptation for us. 
And you know what's beautiful about that? Is the author of Hebrews says with confident assurance this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? You aren't alone. You are not alone. Jesus was. You aren't. And he obeyed the totality of the temptation. He's in the wilderness for 40 days being actively, tormentingly tempted by Satan. He is in a place of great desolation and danger. So remember when I said if we read something in the text that just kind of sticks out like a weird detail, we should investigate why it's there. We get another opportunity here. What's the deal with the detail about the wild animals being with Jesus? You see it there in verse 13. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And commentators speculate as to what this means, but I land the plane in, in a better direction. I think the wild animal reference is not just an echoing back to Eden. I think it could be there. But I think it's a reference back to help us understand just how desolate and dangerous this place was that Jesus had been driven into, in which he must actively and continually obey God while not giving in to Satan. Why do I say that? Because in the Old Testament, we could, we could, I could pepper a lot of different verses. I'll just look at one of them today. In the Old Testament, wild beasts or wild animals were used of God to bring about deadly consequences for disobedience. So consider Leviticus 26. This is what God says. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you. That's not good. Sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your road shall be deserted. Listen to this. Your sin doesn't just affect you. Who's being bereaved of their what? Children. Destroying everything around you is if you mess with sin. It will destroy everything around you. You hear me? And God was using wild beasts to do this. So the wilderness experience of Jesus was no joke. It was a place of real and ever-present danger. The battle for active obedience wouldn't just be 40 grueling days in the desert. It would be three long years of embattled ministry against the realms of Satan. And he never once gave in. He knows temptation. Way more than you know temptation. Do you hear me? No temptation has seized you except what's common to man. God is faithful. He'll provide a way of escape. It's called obedience. Jesus did it for you. And Mark adds one final detail, detail here about angels ministering to Jesus, which I think is the climax of the passage, which reminds me of how the angel of the Lord supplied physical nourishment for the prophet Elijah when he was lonely and desperate in the barren wilderness of his day. You could read about that in 1 Kings 19. All this is just peppered with Old Testament theology and illusions. And you might be tempted to say, well, man... I wish I had angels ministering to me in the moments of my wilderness temptation. Then I'd be able to overcome them. First of all, I say to you, you do. 
Second of all, I say, really? Really? Angels? Just angels? You're content with just angels. You know, the truth is, is you already have ministering spirits sent from heaven to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. You already have the angels. So if you're happy about angels, God has already given us that. But if you're content with that, I can't wait to remind you of the one who made the angels simply by speaking them to existence. And he is the one who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, Jesus, because he always lives to make intercession for them. Don't be content with angels. You have the Son of God on your side. Jesus is far superior to the angels that he made. He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Son of the living God who identified with us as sinners in his baptism. Who obeyed for us on behalf, on our behalf when he was tormentingly tempted. Proving his all sufficiency to be our savior in our time of need both now and in the time of your temptations. And when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? To Peter. And I say to you, are you willing to come to him now? Are you wanting to repent before he comes? Many people have, but have you? He's calling for you. He's calling for you. This passage says, get ready, get set. And Jesus went. And he accomplished it for you. You can try to run the race on your own. Guess what? You're not going to make it. Your only solution is to repent and confess. Many have, but have you. God, I pray that as we think about these things and as we're confronted with the truth of the scripture, and as we offer up this last song of musical worship to you, that we would come, that we would obey the call to go meet you in the desert wilderness of our lives with all of our stink and all of our muck and mire and all of our sin, and then we would repent of those things and confess them to you. God, many of us in this room are hurt and broken. Many of us are overwhelmed by the weight of our sin, and yet we can hear not just John the Baptist's voice in the wilderness, we hear Jesus calling. We hear him saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so, God, I pray that we would come. That we would simply come and fall and embrace you as you embrace us and welcome us back and that you'd cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So, God, in these moments, I pray that we would see just how beautiful you are and what you're offering to us.